three, two, one, and we are live. Or hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World, where we are very close to celebrating our fourth birthday. I can't remember the exact date, but it was round about this time. Uh, so we've been at it for four years and going strong, going very healthily over the next couple of months. We've got a jam-packed schedule. I think we're doing two podcast shows a week, uh, starting today with a phenomenal discussion, as I'm sure it will be with uh, with Rana Gudral of Behavioural Signals. And uh, yeah, we're just going to get motoring. And so uh, we will get on with that conversation very shortly. But first, a quick shout out to our presenting sponsors for this episode of VUX World. It is Deepgram and Symbol AI. So Deepgram, if you're a listener of the show and you've been tuned in for a while, then you'll, you'll probably know about Deepgram uh, by this point. Uh, they were presenting sponsors at the back end of last year industry-leading speech recognition, automatic speech recognition. Uh, it's been used in a whole bunch of different applications and a whole variety of different use cases. Uh, there's actually businesses and products actually being built using the DeepGram APIs. It's got phenomenal performance um, and it's it's cost-effective. Uh, you can retrain it as well, which for things like creating conversational AI solutions or maybe you want to do it for something in your contact center or whatever, uh, being able to retrain based on your industry, your kind of lexicon, your language and all that kind of stuff is, is crucial. Uh, and so if you're in the market for a speech recognition system, do check out DeepGram. You can go to deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Uh, that is deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Uh, and our second sponsor is Symbol AI. Symbol AI uh, have an incredible suite of technologies. Essentially, it is a developer platform and toolkit which allows you to rearrange all of the different things that they do uh, in order for you to create your own solution. And what they do specifically is conversational intelligence. And the possibilities with Symbol AI are absolutely endless. I mean, one of the use cases they have is that the technology will sit inside a call and when you're doing automated outbound dialing, and what it does is it listens for answer phones and if it recognizes an answer phone, it'll just skip to the next uh, the next call. There's a whole bunch of stuff that it does. There's so much data in the conversations that you have. <clears throat> as we're going to find out today uh, as well, um, there's so much data in the conversations you have and, and Symbol AI allows you to get to it, extract it and make use of it. You can create agent assist capabilities with it, a whole range of stuff. I would definitely recommend that you check it out if you're involved in anything to do with call centers, contact centers, or trying to extract information and intelligence from the conversations that you have. That's symbol.ai, S-Y-M-B-L dot A-I. Thank you very much, Deepgram and Symbol. And if you're not subscribed to VUX World yet, I may as well plug one more thing. Then please do subscribe. Every single week, twice a week, we have interviews with the world's leading brains on the topics of NLP, natural language processing, voice AI, conversational AI, and a whole host more. So that's VUX.world forward slash subscribe. And a conversation that is about to happen will be right up your Straza if you are interested in the whole NLP space. We are chatting to Rana Gudral, who is the CEO of Behavioural Signals, all about emotional AI, which is a topic that I'm, you can probably tell by my voice. I'm pretty excited. So welcome, Rana. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, so, Rana, you are um, I was, well, obviously you're the chief exec of Behavioural Signals, but you 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 do all sorts of looks of things. You're an investor. You're a writer. You are a mentor. You do a whole bunch of things uh, aside from behavioral signals. But so maybe maybe we can start with an introduction to yourself, and then we can follow on that with an introduction to behavioral signals and and what you do. So first of all, tell, tell us about yourself. What, what's your uh, you know what's your career being like, and how did you get to creating behavioral signals? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have to say, I mean, I've had the fortunate experience to be a part of uh, several iconic product journeys. Um, during the early years of my career, I worked at Logitech, Kronos, among others, um, where I was involved in the development of some best-in-class products, which enjoyed tremendous uh, commercial successes. Um, one of the most exciting ones was uh, the precursor of uh, Chrome Stick uh, back in the day. It was called Google TV. Wow. And in 2012... Um, I was uh, recruited to be part of a core turnaround team for an iconic company called Cricket Inc. 
And at Cricket, I led the initiative to build the first of its kind uh, innovative products for the DIY community and uh, affected the turnaround of Cricket's EBITDA from a negative 100 million position, which was uh, when we took it on uh, to profitability plus 12 mil. Um, So it's about 112 million movement in EBITDA in a little bit over two years. And so long story short, I mean, Cricket did its its successful IPO in 2021 at 4.4 billion valuation. It's a great success story. Wow. I also um, founded a SaaS company uh, uh, called Ties back in 2014, uh, where we built some early machine learning models uh, to predict uh, the commodity prices in the future. And uh, we set out to improve archaic business processes for a very well-established industry, which was a specialty chemicals market. We went after we built a specialized vertical SaaS for that. And it was an opportunity to create immediate value in a sector screaming for innovation. Um, and we enjoyed rapid growth. Uh, we got acquired by Alchemy um, in 2016. And um, then I came on board as a CEO at Behavioral Signals in December 2019. And uh, it's been an exciting, exciting journey since then. Wow. Interesting. Uh, you said you enjoyed rapid growth. It doesn't always, uh, I imagine there was some some, some uh, pressure involved in that mm-hmm. as well, though. Was it, was it all entirely enjoyable? Or I imagine that when you grow so fast, uh, it's quite difficult to, to keep up with things. How, how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, um, the journey at the end of the day, uh, you reminisce with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of love and, uh, you know, nostalgia and you're excited for those memories uh when you're in the process certainly you know there, there's a lot of uh, ups and downs you've got to go through the trust uh, and uh you know ben Horowitz's famous quote is very true like as you know as a, a ceo of a startup uh you sleep like a baby that is like you cry yourself to sleep every night <laughs> and uh, so there's there's uh, there's a lot of excitement <laughs> i'd say it's not always good excitement. Uh, you're, you're building something uh, which is not predictable. And uh, there's a lot of variables that you don't control. And uh, there's uh, exciting successes and completely devastating failures. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it, it, I'd say it's still enjoyable. And hence, here, is, here I am. I'm, I'm still doing it. Uh, it it's, it's a journey that matters. And I, I love it. Interesting. And what what was it that uh, we don't usually get into this kind of questions, but I'm just generally curious about how, you know, at at cricket, you were minus 100 million, turned things around in a space of two years to plus 12 million, $112 million turnaround. What were some of the core things do you think contributed to that? That's a great question. So, in fact, the situation was much worse than that. So, we took the company over. The company was technically bankrupt uh, with a $300 million debt um, on the balance sheet. And it was losing $100 million every year, negative $100 million EBITDA. And, and revenues had shrunk from um, close to almost $400, $500 million back in the heyday to $30 million. So, the company was going to close. But when we take a look, took a look at it, um, you know, obviously the product uh, and the excitement and the um, the sort of the vibe around the consumer community was something that I'd never come across. Um, the, the passion for their product portfolio, for, for these people who were DIYers and they did this crafting and the, created these products uh, um, in their homes was just amazing. And so we realized that... Um, we're lacking not in terms of the market fit or the product market fit, but essentially the delivery and the execution. And a big part of that was, um, you know, it, ironing out the, the experience, uh, you know, knots, um, which sort of lead to some of these problems in the market. And so eventually everything boils down to innovation. But when you're doing a turnaround, you have to focus on all of those dynamics. You have to focus on the financial aspects, uh, you know, the overall uh, operational issues where, you know, you're spending in the wrong directions. Do you have the right team? Do you have the right passion? Do you have the right culture? All of those things come to play. And so you get to work on everything. Um, but we also realized that none of those are actually going to fix this company. I mean, they could make a small dent here and there, but I mean, in order to really get this back to life, you'd have to do something massive, something big. And that something big has to be technology innovation or product innovation, bringing an experience to the market that market had never seen before. And so we set our 
uh, sights on an experience that uh, didn't exist in the market. I mean, to build a product that was fully automated, was almost robotic. I mean, at a set of a dial, um, that that machine could sort of pre-calibrate a whole complex set of variables for a different set of materials and and deliver that almost like out of box, like just like you know people use a washing machine today. You don't think about hey, should I you know set the temperature at X, Y, or Z? How many spin cycles do I need for my bytes? Just set it at bytes, and the machine figures it out. And so, but this machine is obviously much more complicated. It was a mechanical robotic device, and so it, we're told it's not possible. We said, okay, well, let's see if it's possible. And at the end of the day, we were able to do it, and that did it. And that was the reason why, um, you know, uh, that succeeded. Long story short, the company is worth nine billion today uh, from its IPO last year at four point four billion dollar valuation. Wow! Wow! That is unbelievable. And so, so it sounds then that you've learned a lot about over the years, developed a lot of experience in. Build, building companies. So Ties started from scratch, built that company. Uh, Cricket kind of took over at a point where it was, it sounds as though it was in fairly kind of despair. Um, so not not only experience in building companies, but also experience in getting into companies that are in a bad way and turning them around. I, I, you could probably say that that's maybe similar to building a company because as you said, you have to basically scrap everything and, and build you a whole new product. Yeah, yeah. So so what 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 was it about behavioral signals then that, that interested you and why why the move there? So it started in 2016 by lots of things. You took over in 2019. What was it about that company that kind of resonated with you? Why, why did you fancy that? Yeah, so as you said, uh, Behavioral Signals was founded um, in 2016. It was actually a spinoff from University of Southern California. The technology, core technology was developed uh, at the Sale Labs um, in USC. And um, it, it, is, it is a company with, uh, with an unprecedented technology, which when I came across, I was just bowled over. I mean, that uh, was the hook. Um, I mean, what we do is the, the, we enhance communication between humans and human to machines by deducing intelligent and actionable insights from voice using deep learning and NLP. And it's essentially um, going behind or beyond the spoken word and focusing on the intonations and tonality and pitch and tonal variance. And from that extracting a whole variety of very advanced signals, emotion signals, behavioral signals, and some very advanced classifiers that potentially you could call as intense signals. For example, predicting what um, what a participant in a conversation will do in terms of an action, obviously based on the context of the conversation. So would the buy or not buy or pay or not pay or, you know, for that matter, if it's a conversation between, say, an uh, immigration agent and a visitor, will they overstay or not, et cetera. So you, you could do that. And so we sort of uh, we looked at this whole aspect of, um, going beyond the spoken word and processing these intelligent insights from that. And um, the, when I, if you sort of uh, laid out, um, the use cases and the possibilities are endless. I mean, uh, it, it's like you, you could build uh, a dozen successful companies out of that core tech and, um, you know, if, if the technology actually works. And so, I mean, the ability to make an impact uh, with that core tech um, is what I sort of look at as uh, NLP 2.0, which is, I mean, if you look at the large spectrum of NLP landscape today, uh, or for that matter, conversational AI landscape today, for the most part, uh, most of these uh, most of these systems in use today are really uh, processing um, the audio uh, in a way that they use a speech-to-text convert audio into words and then they're really trying to decipher all of the meaning and intelligence from the words being spoken um, and um, that is uh, obviously effective in many use cases but you're also lose, leaving a lot of uh, intelligence on the table and so when we realize that you could gather so much from the non-spoken word that the spoken word itself becomes relevant irrelevant and uh, so much so that we don't even use that in a variety of use cases that we are brought to uh, bought the market, um, many of those apply into contact centers. And when you're not processing the spoken word, then you have these additional advantages of uh, it kind of almost being language agnostic. I mean, 
you don't care what you're saying. You don't care what language you're speaking in. Um, and uh, you're, you're able to decipher agent engagement and ex- customer experience. And you're able to uh, do intelligent matchmaking between agents and clients, what, what is what we do with one of our products. And uh, you, could, uh, you could, you know, uh, you know, predict intent. I mean, you could go into many different directions all without ever processing what someone's saying. Um, and that then also secures and preserves the privacy of the conversation, which is a huge problem in AI today. Um, and, you know, so, I, I mean, when I looked at those elements and where the company's at, um, uh, it was a no-brainer. Um, I mean, this is this is an opportunity for massive impact, and uh, I was hooked. Wow. That's so interesting because you hear a lot of times uh, often – well, not often, actually. It's not very often, but over the course of doing this podcast, we've had many conversations with uh, companies that, that say things like, you know, there's so much data lost when you take the audio. I know Speakeasy, Frank Schneider from Speakeasy always kind of says that, that, that if you strip away the audio and you're just left with the text, you, you lose a whole bunch of information. So from behavioral signals point yeah. of view, what is it that you lose when you just take audio and and turn it into text? What what else exists in the audio that leads to some of the use cases? We'll get into the use cases in, in a moment, but like just high, high level wise, what what's some of the data that exists in the audio itself that you lose when you just translate it into text? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know um, that's that's a multifaceted question. Let's start with um, sort of the core tenets of emotion AI uh, or behavioral AI for that matter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we as humans um, project out a lot of affect signals, uh, which is the technical term for emotion um, in terms of how we're feeling, whether it's passion, anger, sadness, and there's also a bunch of behavioral signals which are translated from the emotional cues, which which are like, am I engaged or am I disengaged? And so when you talk about affect and emotion signals, we project that through a variety of different cues. As humans, we do it through facial expressions or body language by saying something or by not saying something or all. And also very much so by tone of voice. And our particular focus as a company has been around deducing emotions exclusively from the, from the speech aspects and the, the, the tone of voice. And we do it through the focus on tonality uh, not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it, and the emphasis behind the words um, with a specific pitch and focus around how you're emphasizing a few things. So, um, I mean, the question is, why focus on tone of voice? Uh, primarily because it is one of the most superior tenets uh, of uh, deducing affect. Um, Professor Krauss uh, was a you know, very well-known researcher from Yale published a very famous paper in 2017 where he actually benchmarked um, some of these various modalities. Um, his famous test was, took a, a piece of video, uh, a, 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 you know, a small uh, snippet of video, and he uh, turned, uh, the, t- turned the video off and just processed the audio portion of it and uh, benchmarked uh, emotion. Uh, or behavioral signals that came out of it. And uh, his, uh, obviously the hypothesis there was that, hey, I, I'm going to use one modality, then I'm going to combine with a second modality and uh, my level of accuracy should improve because now I have more data. And so the second test was to use the video, turn the video on, and also look at the signals from the video and then combine that with the signals from the audio. And what he found was that his, his accuracy actually took a nosedive. It went down. And he was really surprised by that. And that was the whole premise of the study. It's like, how is that when I'm looking at someone and hearing them, I have an inferior read on how they're feeling versus when I'm just listening to them. And, and the issue with that is that when you're looking at someone, you're getting a lot of false reads. I mean, we as humans have a very good ability to mask our emotions on our faces. Um, and so we're, you know, if you're feeling X, we're reflecting Y through our facial expressions. But it's almost impossible, um, unless you're, you know, uh, a professional who's been trained to do that, it's almost impo- impossible to do that through the tone of your voice. Uh, how you feel, uh, whether you're engaged or disengaged, whether you're happy or you're sad, um, 
you know, uh, it's going to reflect in the tone of voice. So when you're looking at the specific cues and you're looking at, I mean, we could get into sort of how that actually happens, but mm. it, you can you can measure that with a very high level of accuracy, including, you know, signals that might, you know, look very similar uh, or sound very similar, for example, excitement and anger. Uh, but there's several differences. I mean, it's essentially variance from a specific baseline. Um, and you could very accurately pinpoint uh, if you're excited or your anger without without looking at the person and also without even you know uh, listening to uh, the words being spoken uh, or processing the words being spoken um, and or understanding the language. I mean, so you, you know, uh, another like an interesting test is that if you were to go uh, take a piece of um, uh, t- take a video of. Um, any video that, uh, you know, a snippet uh, in a foreign language that you have absolutely no idea about um, or actually to take, take, a, uh, to take a snippet of audio with a, in an audio that, in a language that you have no idea about, you can't understand a single word. And obviously there's no facial expression and so there's no video and there's no closed captions. You're just relying on that foreign language audio and force yourself to think about um, to distinguish those subtle signals. It was like, I'm going to see if I can deduce, my brain can it deduce anger versus excitement. Um, and you can. And so the question is how? And that's what we've codified. And so you don't need any of those uh, crutches. And so when you're free from those, uh, then you have a technology that is way more powerful uh, than the traditional NLP um, you know, set of uh, tools that you're at your disposal. And so, and that's why we focused on that. I mean, we're exclusively, uh, I mean, there, there are certain use cases where, you know, words do become relevant and there are certain use cases where facial expressions are relevant, but for the most part, we're focused on uh, the tone of voice. Interesting. That is so interesting because I wonder, because it's true, even humans do that. I think humans can get a better read for someone's, kind of emotion i mean it's obviously you see someone like with a scrunched up face that looks angry it's it's obvious but you know when you have a phone call with someone remember when we used to have phone calls without facetime remember those days when you just have an actual audio phone call with someone and you can sense sometimes can't you whether something's not quite right you know what i mean you know you know someone will say hello and you say hello uh, how are you doing yeah i'm fine and then you can just pick are you all right you say you know you sound a bit down or you sound a bit sad or, mm-hmm. so it's it's almost like and it's it's easier to do that, I think, than it is to watch a video of someone on a FaceTime. And because, and, as you say, people can mask their face, but at the same time, when it's just audio, there's nothing else, and you can focus on it a little bit more. Do you think that's partly what it is? Is that? But I don't suppose a machine even cares. But is it because of that? Is it because without with audio, purely audio, there's no other distractions to <clears throat> interfere with it? Like well, partly, 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 yes. I mean, but I'd say more than the distractions, uh, it's less of, less false alerts, right? So you're looking at facial expressions, and you're getting a false read for the most most part. Um, you're, uh, you know, your your brain's telling you that the person's engaged uh, or disengaged, uh, but the facial expression um, tells you otherwise, and so then you're confused, um, and as a result, um, you don't really have a very accurate read. Um, and so that is that is the real that is the real big problem. I mean, even t- t- today, um, you know, some of some of the the best salespeople out there and um, you know uh, professional coaches insist on a uh, first interaction to be a phone call, not a video call, not a Zoom call, not an in person meeting, but we're going to talk on the phone. And you have an hour conversation, hour and a half conversation on the phone. Uh, you're really sort of like, you know, have this sort of visceral connect. I mean, you're really connecting purely based on the, um, based on the, the voice. And, uh, and you're, I mean, you're obviously, your brain's processing all the tenants of NLP and NLU. So you're processing the language uh, and you're processing the words. Um, and most of the most of the tonal processing happens behind the scenes inside your brain. I mean, you're and, and that's where you're sort of getting those instant reads. And so we've sort of taken it even further. We'd say, you know, not just audio. Forget the spoken word. We don't even need the spoken word. Uh, we, we can get all the intelligence that we need to uh, just by uh, just by understanding the the tonal variance. Um, and, and like, think about how a baby speaks to you or converses or understands what you're saying, uh, or for that, that, that matter, animals, uh, or dogs, right? I mean, if you've had a dog, you understand it. I bet he understands 
everything and like you know mm. dogs don't understand your language i mean you know <laughs> he's processing the tone of voice i mean you're saying something in a certain way and he exactly understands if you're pissed or happy or is that a good boy or a bad boy you know <laughs> the, the, they don't understand english or for that matter any language right so and so that's that's a very inherent capability that's how babies talk. babies converse um you know this is before the the language abilities are developed and so that's innate in us as humans but when you're able to codify that and bring that into uh you know a classifier that you can then implement in certain use cases um, there are a lot of other possibilities uh that that you can then go after and a lot of use cases that you can apply it to mm interesting so it makes me think when i don't do this anymore cuz cuz the setup's a bit better now, but I used to, with the podcast, I used to, um, every time I'd, I'd record something, I would take the audio, <clears throat> I would put it into uh, Adobe Audition, and I would do a whole bunch of processing on it. I used to like make music years and years ago, so part of it was just because I fancied having a dabble back in, in, in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd do a bunch of processing on the audio, so my voice I would split into a number of different channels, and to make it kind of like, this mic sounds pretty good, but before I used to have to try and make it sound nice. And so I would take the audio and I would cut off all of the top end so that all you were left with was is this the bottom end, the, the rumble, and I would make that a bit louder and compress it. So basically, if I was just trying to play that sound, right, it would... <laughs> That's basically how it sounds, exactly how it sounds, right? So based on what you're saying there in terms of you recognizing just the tonalities... If I was to feed something like that into the behavioral signals model that just has those tonal variations, is that something that it would be able to pick up and say this person's angry or excited or whatever? Or does it need a bit more richer tonal information than that? I think we'll be able to um, extract um, a lot of information from that. Um, obviously, it depends on you know uh, what use case are we applying it to and uh, is that level of information effective or not. Um, you know, for, for some, you know, for some use cases, you like, for, for example, one of our, uh, one of our flagship products, uh, the AIMC solution, which is uh, an AI uh, mediated conversation engine, um, we can create a behavioral profile uh, or um, a conversation bioprint of a participant uh, just by processing um, a two minute uh, audio feed. Um, for, for both parties. So, so if, you have a, if you have a phone call uh, that is between one and a half to two minutes, that's all we really need uh, to have a very accurate behavioral profile uh, codified, and then you can use that to do subsequent matchmaking. Um, and uh, some, of the other, uh, some of the other advanced use cases need a little bit more data. Like, so for example, um, there's some propensity indicators that we've built for example, predicting the propensity uh, to pay or propensity to buy, and uh, they require a little bit more data. But then, you know, uh, then you're actually, you know, going after a much higher bar use case. Like for example, uh, that use case uh, allows you to predict, um, like you know, for example, if the customer will buy or not buy, and we could do that now. So once you have that um, that sort of that data that you're processed and you have that next interaction um, within the first like 20 to 30 seconds of a call you can make a propensity prediction like a binary yes or no it's not a percentage probability it's like will buy or not buy and uh, that is typically 82 to 85 percent accurate uh, which is pretty powerful right so if you have if you have a technology that can tell you um, with my debt holder will pay or not pay or buy or not buy with 80 to 85% accuracy within the first 20 seconds of the call, what would you do with that information? You know, would you change your tactic? Um, or would you maybe, you know, uh, you know, uh, change your approach in a different way? And what would it do to your business uh, metrics and your bottom line? Um, it becomes really, really powerful. Um, but you need some, um, you know, some backend data processing to, to get to do that. So it's for repeated interactions. Um, but uh, like if you're if you're going after a more sort of a typical traditional agent assist use case, which is where 
um, you have an agent in a live conversation with a client um, and you're trying to help uh, that agent, uh, provide agent that tool, some tools to make those interactions uh, more effective and uh, help them help them be better in that engagement by giving them some real-time, real-time cues as to how the conversation is progressing. For example, helping them understand how they're doing. Um, you know, so typically what happens is like in an agent-client conversation, um, Agent is focused on the client, as everyone is, right? So I'm focused on how Ken's feeling and Ken's focused on how I'm feeling. And I mean, your brain is. And so just just like that, agent's focused on how the client is doing in the sense of the client engager. I mean, so they don't really need an AI tool to tell them that the client's angry. They can sense that or, or happy or engaged or disengaged. I mean, unless the agent's really clueless, but for the most part, they're well-trained and they're uh, the smart people. They know. But what's happening is, they're not focusing on themselves. So if they're ex- exhibiting a certain behavior or a certain emotion, um, they're zoning that out. Um, and they might be sounding disengaged or they might be sounding a little you know, rude or angry sometimes. Or they're missing certain cues and aren't acting on those behaviors. Uh, that's where AI can help them. They can tell them, hey, you're, you should slow down a little bit. You're talking too fast. Or you're you know, sounding disengaged or angry. Or by the way, you're getting this signal to you know, um, you should ask for a close. I mean, you know, the customer's ready to buy. And so those things become really important. And for that, I mean, we could do it like almost near real time. So we don't need any backend data. I mean, we never need to have spoken with that agent or that client before. You run the engine and I mean, uh, our, our latencies are very low and uh, it's real time. So like, like in 200 milliseconds or so, the signals start to get processed and bam, 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 you know, you can start to guide like literally as a word has been spoken and that interactions happen, the signals on the dashboard um, and you could react to it in real, real time. Um, wow. So th- those, it depends on the use case on what you're trying to solve for and uh, what is the end game um, depends on sort of how much data do you need. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So, so all of that, as you explained there, the agent assist stuff, the kind of like, uh, you know, the emotional AI, is, is all of that part of the AI mediated conversations? Or is that straining to other capabilities as well? I wonder whether we can just define what AI mediated yeah. conversations entails and then we can maybe highlight some other use cases. So, so the AI mediated conversations part, how, how would you yeah. kind of define that? Yeah. Let's talk about AI media conversation. So the AI media conversations essentially uh, involve building profiles of customers and call center agents based on past interactions. So these profiles are then fed into uh, a predictive model to determine which agent should be paired with a specific customer in the future so that the desired outcome is achieved. And the profiles comprise of a set of behavior and emotion related metrics for example, whether a customer is negative, polite, or she has shown, shown any tendency to get easily agitated. And so measurements of this kind are extracted from patterns identified in one's voice and are based on emotion AI, namely the ability to understand the emotional state. And so once we, once we have those, I mean, so essentially it's an example of limited memory AI and has been trained using machine learning and thousands of past interactions associated with uh, corresponding outcomes. And, um, once you have those behavioral profiles, I mean, so as I mentioned, I mean, in order for us to create these profiles, all we need is uh, a two-minute audio interaction between an agent and client, and there you go. You have those uh, profiles in place. The next interaction will be uh, assisted using an AI matchmaking engine, so you bring the right people um, in front of each other. And the premise there is that, um, you know, the... The, the rapport can be influenced by the right conversations and the right responses at the right time, whether it's a sales call with a prospect, a support conversation with a customer or a difficult conversation, say in collections, um, you know, the business turns on interactions of real humans and the affinity between any two humans um, is what really matters. And so AIMC essentially optimizes for that conversation dynamic. And it, it looks at the, available pool of agents and say, who's the best match with this particular client and gets that person in front of each, uh, that client. Or if it's an outbound uh, situation, like, like it is in most debt collection calls or even in outbound sales, um, then rather than you know, going after a random list of people to call, I mean, each agent has a curated set of matches for that particular agent that's matched to their conversational profile and, uh, and, 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 and behavioral profile dynamic. And that's who they call. And so when you do that, 
you create a tremendous, uh, tremendous value creation. So for example, um, I mean, when we apply it in the industry, um, we improve outcomes anywhere from 12 to 18%. That could be uh, increase in sales or it could be revenue recovery, which is what happens in collections. And so aside from that, there's a lot of other, uh, you know, the significant impact on uh, CSAT related KPIs, such as customer experience and engagement and also agent, uh, agent engagement, et cetera. And so it's, it's really, really, really powerful. And so that's a flagship product, um, AIMC. Um, we also have uh, another product, um, Oliver API, which is really uh, more uh, sort of uh, geared towards OEM. Um, and that's, uh, that's essentially taking our core engines and, uh, you know, allowing other use cases to be manifested from that, those core engines through an API. And so if so someone, someone's building an interesting solution and they want certain tenants of emotion AI with, or tone-based emotion AI, they could use those APIs uh, to, uh, you know, bring in that additional level of experience uh, in the system. Interesting. So, so in terms of the agent pairing, is that, is that working based on like one caller sounds maybe agitated, sounds maybe he's a bit kind of like, I don't know, speaks very fast or has a certain speaking style or certain emotional state. And then Mm -hmm. you profile the call handler and you, what you, what is it? What is that profile trying to do? Is it trying to understand that person A deals with, customers that are angry better than person B and person B deals with customers that are maybe a little bit more softer spoken, et cetera, better than person A. Is that, is that what it's kind of trying to do is match together those, those things. Is that what it's doing? That's a great question. Um, it, it, it affects those dynamics, uh, but that's not what it's trying to do. Um, it's actually trying to solve for a much bigger, much more complicated problem, uh, or uh, I, I'd say uh, experience metric. So let, let's let's take this example, right? So um, we've all been in um, conversations uh, where um, you know it, it could be a complex or a tense conversation, or it could be a conversation with someone we don't even like, uh, but the conversation itself flows really well. It goes great. I mean, there's a there's a flow and a rhythm in that conversation, um, and you you have a great. It may not be a pleasant conversation, but you have a great conversation because of some reasons, and we don't mm. understand why. And then there are other situations where you're talking to someone, uh, you know, uh, and it's a neutral discussion and uh, it's it's a safe conversation, but you're struggling to communicate, right? Your commun your your wavelengths are not on the same, uh, you're not, your, your, your rhythm's not on the same wavelength and uh, there's, no, there's no flow to the conversation and you're struggling to it. And so the question is, why does that happen, right? So we all speak in a, and converse in a unique manner and it's a, it's a factor of a variety of different um, variables and attributes like, you know, ranging from how fast do I speak or slow do I, uh, slow, uh, I speak how much energy I exude, how I behave uh, with other person's utterances, like do I interrupt or do I listen? And uh, am, am I really sort of focusing on uh, certain sort of tenants and how do I react to that? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex set of factors. Uh, but when, when those wavelengths match, you have a great conversation. That's it, right? I mean, uh, I'm not talking about a happy or a sad conversation, but you have a great conversation. I mean, and you feel good about the conversation dynamic. That's what we are trying to optimize. So the premise uh, is really simple. Um, when you curate good matches that uh, between the conversational uh, rhythms, you improve the conversational dynamic and you have great conversations. And if you have great conversations, more than uh, likely you're going to have a great uh, outcome. Whatever the business outcome is hinging on that conversation. That's exactly what we're focusing on. To say, okay, I mean, so in a business context, these agents and clients are going to come together and have a conversation about a variety of different factors. Um, Could be about a customer service call. It could be outbound sales or it could be a debt collection call. The complexity may vary. Um, You know, what if we pair people together where their conversational uh, rhythms match and they're just going to have a great conversation. 
leave everything else to the agent, right? So we're not necessarily having the agent do anything different. I mean, so they're, you know, rather than say, okay, you know, uh, go do your thing. I mean, speak like you speak, but we've already paired with uh, you with a person that likes the way that you speak uh, or is, is complimentary to how you engage and converse. Now you do your thing, right? So don't change a thing, go do your thing. And they're going to have a great conversation. Now, barring that the agents are well-trained and they know how to handle various complexities of interactions, you're going to end up having great conversation and you're going to have a great outcome and the proof of the pudding, right? So what we see is it's a massive improvement in outcomes, like between 12 to 18%. And that's a massive, like if you're looking at revenue collection and your revenue improves 12 to 18%, simply by putting these right people uh, together in that conversational dynamic, that's pretty powerful. And you're not changing anything else. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not focusing on any other dynamic. You're not having the agents do anything differently. And the other thing is that you're really, so each individual has their own unique abilities. And now we're sort of like, you know, keying off on those abilities. It's not about, hey, um, all the calls are being routed to your best performing agents. There's no definition of a best performing agent in this category, right? So it's about what's, who's the best for this particular client who's calling in uh, or the client who needs to be called. And uh, but that's what we're solving for. So we're basically optimizing um, the conversational uh, dynamic uh, for that one or two conversations that need to happen towards a business outcome between that particular agent and that particular client. Um, and uh, we're using intelligent AI uh, and previous interactions. And by the way, all of this happens before, without using any, um, any uh, transcription engine. We do not use a speech-to-text engine. Uh, we, at, at no point in these uh, profile buildings, uh, we're converting the audio into text and uh, processing the text. So it's language agnostic. I mean, our solutions can be implemented um, um, in a conversational uh, uh, system uh, that includes not only any language, but multiple languages. And that's typically what happens. I mean, if you're going to have a conversation um, mostly, most conversations outside of U.S. and say U.K. involve two or more languages. I mean, if you're gonna have a Vietnamese uh, call, you know, they're gonna talk a little bit in English, a little bit in Vietnamese, some other local dialects, and uh, doesn't matter. I mean, we're not even using a speech-to-text engine. Uh, we're just sort of building these profiles on that, and we have a pretty good, solid read on the conversational dynamic. Um, so it's it's a new science. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not something it's not something that you you know that you typically see at call centers where you you know where you're really sort of keying off on specific words or you're keying off on specific audio signals uh, where you're sort of saying oh you know here's um, you know somebody said something and now I'm going to use certain proprietary algorithms to understand what that something might imply. Is that something uh, a negative word or a positive word, or does that mean they're happy or sad? Um, it's very inaccurate because uh, it works in certain cases. I mean, it's a great use case for compliance where, you know, Hey, you asked for your, um, you know, uh, as for your, your age or sex and you shouldn't have done that. And now that we have the systems caught that, you know, we can find those problems. But um, outside of that, um, you know, if you're going to try to uh, put a pulse on emotion and behavior by keying off on what someone's saying, uh, that's very inaccurate. I mean, you know, in English language, I mean, I could say something in 10 different ways and mean 10 different things, and I could say the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, so how does the system find that out if you're just processing speech or text? Yeah, there's a really good line on friends don't know if you uh, if you watch Friends or not, but I've seen uh, it like five reruns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's seen Friends a million times. So when when um, when my wife went on maternity leave, she yeah. was just kind of like running reruns of, of Friends, and, and I caught loads. I've seen loads of it anyway. But anyway, there's a really good line on Friends, which um, Joey is in this play, and it's a really terrible play, and they all hate it. They're all there watching it, and they all hate it. And afterwards, they're, they're down, everyone's left, and, and all of the kind of friends are kind of like on the stage, and they're talking to Joy, and Joy's saying, oh, an agent has just spoke to me and said that they want to sign me. And Phoebe turns to Joy and says, what? Based on this play? And then Joy looks at her like, you know, like, what do you mean? And she go, and she realizes that it's been taken the wrong way, and she goes, oh, based on this play. <laughs> so yeah. she, just cha- she changes. She says the exact same thing, but it means two completely different things, which is... Completely different things. Which is you, you got it. You, yeah. You, yeah, exactly. 
But the thing exactly. you touched on there, I think, is, which is really interesting, and my mind's a little bit blown in terms of the ability to pair those two people together, to be honest, based on conversational styles, because I've done a lot of work in, in government and transformation projects and programs in government, and most of the time, when someone contacts their government for something they don't actually want to contact the government they just have to because something's gone wrong or they need a passport or a driving license or they need something so it's not a choice that they're making from free will it's that they don't really have a choice if they want to leave the country or whatever so so often the interactions with government are really interesting because sometimes people are, are contacting an organization in whatever channel or form it is in order to get something they that they need or it's that something's actually gone wrong and so especially in local government or municipalities as it is in the u.s they'll get loads of complaints about all kinds of stuff and the bin hasn't been collected there's a street light that's not working a park bench is broken loads of complaints come in and sometimes there's nothing that the government can actually do about any of that stuff but the person's complaining just to complain. And a lot of the time, you know, what we used to do at the start of all our projects in, in the discovery phase is have a look at these complaints in, in a given service area. What what are people mourning about? And a lot of the time it was the fact that the outcome that they received wasn't the outcome that they wanted. So a bin yeah. hasn't been collected. They want it picked up, but it's not going to be picked up because they didn't get in touch in time. So they're not going to get the outcome that they want. Mm-hmm. However, not getting the outcome that you want can actually still be a positive experience, providing the interaction is positive. So what you were talking about there in terms of pairing people together, yes, it can have an impact on sales. Yes, it could have an impact on a whole bunch of other stuff, but it can also turn a conversation that has a bad outcome from the customer's perspective. I'm sorry, I can't have a refund because this is the policy and whatever it is. There's certain outcomes that customers are not going to get in some situations. And those negative outcomes are often, you know, as far as the customer's concerned, it's a bad experience, a bad company because I didn't get what I wanted. But you can still actually through this kind of thing, through providing a good experience, end up with a good experience, good CSAT, good NPS, even though the customer hasn't got the bad outcome. And I think that this pairing together people based on their conversational styles is potentially one of the real key ingredients to to do that. You're absolutely right. Like, I mean, um, achieving a negotiated outcome is uh, very, very uh, firmly dependent on the quality of the interaction and the conversation that you're going to have. Um, so if, and if you're going to achieve the negotiated outcome uh, through a verbal conversation, um, then the quality of the conversation matters tremendously. I mean, and the dynamic of the conversation matters tremendously. And so allowing, um, you know, these tools to improve those dynamics uh, have a significant impact. I mean, it's not surprising because it's, it's a, for, I think, I mean, we're sort of going after the core tenets of what make, uh, you know, conversations effective uh, to begin with and, you know, and, and sort of keying off on certain metrics and sort of uh, doing some matchmaking based on those metrics and really sort of going behind uh, behind the scenes into sort of like, I mean, you kind of, in some ways, peeking inside the brains of these individuals and creating these advanced conversational bioprints, uh, which are pre-created and say, okay, I understand who you are as a, as a person as an individual and I understand how you speak and how you converse and um, I'm going to build on your strengths and I'm going to leverage uh, your strengths and I'm going to use that in the other interactions and future interactions that you may have. And so it's really, really not, I mean, we're not talking about is there a good way to converse or a bad way to converse. Certainly, yeah, there are certain guidelines and benchmarks, uh, but you know, my conversational style could be completely ineffective with certain individuals who might find that it's impossible to talk to me. I mean, maybe I'm talking too fast or, you know, uh, it's just that the dynamic and the rhythm's off. And now in order for me to have a good conversation with that person, I'd have to literally change how I converse, which is impossible. And it's not going to have a great conversation. So it's better to find somebody who is a better match and better wavelength if you can. And you can. You have a choice in a contact center. Um, and so these are advanced level tools. I mean, I think, I think what people find it mind boggling is that, you know, in still many contact centers today, for the most part, uh, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about multi-billion dollar companies and they don't even have uh, a basic NLP engine in place. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's 
very rudimentary. So for a lot of these uh, companies, I mean, they're like, wow, but we're not even doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, uh, sometimes you'd say you don't need to do those X, Y, Z anymore because uh, you have these newer tools at your disposal. You could, you could go after something uh, that, you know, creates value without the bulk, without sort of the complexity um, and, 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 you know, and significantly improve your operations. Yeah. So um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very powerful. Mm, interesting. What, how do you kind of like, when it comes to that sort of like enterprise side of things, you've got, I mean, what am I trying to say? Some, sometimes the kind of people that run contact centers, they, they kind of know that, that, you know, AI is there. AI exists and that potentially AI will solve all their problems if they can just find a black box to buy it from. Um, but often, from my experience, not everybody in that space has a real thorough understanding of exactly kind of how they can solve the problems that they're trying to solve for. Or maybe it's not a problem they're trying to solve for. Maybe it's some value they're trying to create. So this AI-mediated conversation, it's not necessarily solving a, a kind of like a fundamental problem as such, although you could argue that mismatching people in a conversation is a problem. But it's definitely, by the sounds of things, creating value. But I think sometimes organizations have a little bit of trouble trying to identify those opportunities. So what's your sort of um, your observations of the kind of like, I suppose, maturity of those multi-billion dollar organizations or in general, the kind of like organizations that your clients of yours or prospects and that, what's your kind of observations of the general sort of maturity of the, the market as far as solutions like this are concerned and technology is concerned? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there are actually certain, um, certain egregious problems um, that are, uh, you know, screaming in uh, these companies' faces that we, we go solve for right up front. Like, and, and those are uh, typical issues that you face in some of these sectors. Like, you know, um, in, a, in a typical contact center, um, let's, you know, we'll go into the specialized aspects of, say, maybe debt collection later. But in a typical contact center, average handle time um, becomes really crucial. And also first call resolution is very important, uh, which is the AHT and FCR metrics. Um, and you have these situations where you have a limited number of agents. Obviously, it's cost. I mean, you, uh, most are trying to reduce the number of agents uh, and pushing them more towards uh, automated systems, chatbots, this, this and that. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you're, you're trying to optimize for those interactions. Uh, you, your average handle time is a direct impact on your cost. And so if you're going to have a conversation that struggles, it's going to take longer. I mean, it's going to take more time to resolve. So if you, if you have a good conversation, you get to an outcome quicker, faster, everyone's happier, uh, everyone's feeling better about it, and you're reducing your average handle time significantly. So we've been, we've been in situations, we actually, I can't name the company, but we, uh, we recently looked at a deployment uh, where it's a major bank, well-known bank. The average handle time is four hours. Uh, yeah, it's like, wow, four hours? And they're like, yeah, that's our average. It's like, well, that's just crazy. Uh, sorry, not the average handle time, uh, the, the wait time before uh, oh, right. oh, my uh, God. Uh, an agent, agent would pick the call up. And that's because the average handle times are much longer. So the available agents are taking a lot longer. And so the rest of the, you know, the clients are waiting in the queue for, for four hours. So if you optimize that, it not only affects the average handle time, uh, but also the, the wait time for the callers. And also, you know, it impacts other FCR metrics. Uh, like, so for example, in debt collection, uh, there are more industrial regulations that are coming, uh, coming, to, uh, coming to market uh, where, um, you know, the, you're prevented from calling the client more than a certain number of times um, by law, right? So you could have maybe one or two interactions. Um, it, it depends on the region in terms of, sort of how many interactions that you can actually have with a client. And uh, beyond that, you can't call that client again um, because it's considered harassment. And so now um, you have to resolve uh, the situation in those limited number of interactions. These tools become really important, right? So every call matters, every interaction matters. You have to optimize for that interaction. You can't just sort of say, 
I'm going to randomly put a person in front of that client. And if that doesn't go well, I'm going to just like, you know, call that person 20 other times. No, you can't now by law. I mean, uh, I mean, in, even in practical terms, uh, it doesn't happen because people get those numbers blocked and, you know, you stop responding. So those metrics matter before this regulation, but this new sort of guideline regulation makes it uh, even more challenging. And so now you have to use some of these technologies to, you know, optimize for those interactions. Um, so those are, you know, real problems. But outside of that, a lot of these industries, uh, um, you know, work on razor thin margins. I mean, if you're talking about debt collection and revenue recovery, razor thin margins. I mean, you're working off on, I mean, you're buying uh, that debt portfolio uh, for some pennies on a dollar. And, you know, you're looking to maybe, you know, get another like, you know, uh, five cents, 10 cents on that each engagement. And so it's, it's, it's uh, very complex. And so now if you have a solution or technology that comes in and like within the third or the fourth month, uh, it's delivering you a 12 to 18% improvement in revenue. That's a huge deal. I mean, it could become, uh, you know, a difference between how you compete in the market versus profitability and sustenance. And so I think those, those issues become real, really, really important. Now, I mean, the cherry on the cake is improving the engagement and experience metric. I mean, your clients are happier, your agents are more engaged and more satisfied with their performance, um, and your experience metrics go higher. Um, in general, uh, it's a win-win for your NPS, uh, which is not an issue for, not something that the debt collection agencies track, they don't care about NPS, but everybody else does. I mean, you know, um, that contact center uh, is, is a key center point uh, of how those NPS metrics play out. And so, you know, and so it, it becomes, uh, it's hyper-personalization. So, I mean, look, where the future is headed, we're going to digitize most of those interactions. Um, you're going to have uh, most of those uh, interactions be solved for in, um, you know, uh, in non-interaction, non-vocal-based uh, interactions. I mean, so it's chatbots and this and that. Um, but there are certain interactions that have to be in person, uh, have to be, you know, uh, with a with a live agent, live person, and most of the complex conversations. They'll be far in between, and they'll be frequent, and every interaction will matter. So you're going to be looking at hyper personalization. So, so this is the category you you get into where you know you're not only optimizing for that dynamic elsewhere, but you're actually hyper personalizing that interaction for that one individual, that one person. Uh, who uh, who matters? Um, and I mean, it, it, think about it. I mean, uh, what you're really trying to do is like, let's say if you you know, let's say if you have a behavioral psychologist uh, in the company uh, or army of behavioral psychologists in a company that are uh, listening to each agent and have a good sense of who how each agents behave and interact. And you're also doing uh, the same for each client. You're listening to each client call, and then you're live, uh, you know, uh, deciding uh, who uh, who should speak with who. It's almost, I mean, it, it's a fiction. It, it can't happen. <laughs> but that's what this technology makes happen. So the, these AI engines can do exactly that at infinite scale uh, at a very cost-effective manner. And the results, um, um, you know, impact pretty much all CSAT metrics. Wow. That's, yeah, that's unbelievable. I know we're up on time. I've got one more question if we have time for it. Yeah. Um, sure. So I've been, I've been speak, think, thinking a lot since the new year about about the ethics in AI. And I had a chat with Mark Bernstein from Bolto on his podcast, uh, Reimagining the Contact Center, a few weeks back. And there was this video of Tony Robbins, and he was talking about an old sales job that he had. And essentially, it was a job where he was going to people's houses, knocking on doors, trying to sell music subscriptions for tips. And the idea was that once you get through the door, the, it's like Spotify, but analog, right? So it's like a big suitcase full of tips. And the idea is that you kind of sell the, the customer or potential customer on the fact that they can have all of the music that they would ever want. And then the only thing to do is just give them a call and they'll send some tips. And there was all kinds of techniques that he used to get the customer to basically agree that they would be it's good value good pricing all that kind of stuff and at the very end of the conversation the customer was saying well the only thing is i don't have a tape player 
and basically he used all of these like little are you sure you'd buy it if you if you had a tape player oh yeah I would definitely buy it are you sure it's a good price yeah it's a good price are you sure I did a good job yeah you did a good job and then basically he pulls out a tape player at the end and he says if you subscribe I'll give you a tape player and it's obviously a lot more advanced than that I'm just kind of like you know mm-hmm. rushing through it basically but uh, it's a really good video but essentially what it is, is a bunch of these sales tactics and psychological kind of like uh, hacks I suppose where he's got someone to commit that they would definitely buy but the only thing is they don't have a tape player, then he gives them a tape player. And so we were talking about whether could an AI be programmed to act unethically like that? If you could train an AI on the behavior of humans and therefore consistently upsell, consistently sell, uh, is, is it is it ethical? And the same question is true if you use something like Warbot or there was a study done from the uh, Association for Eating Disorders, National Eating Disorder Association, where they found that a chatbot can actually reduce people's propensity to develop an eating disorder, which is good. The outcome is good, but it's using behavioral psychology to get there. And I think the conversation we've been having has been much more about empowering agents to be able to do their job better. It's been much more about uh, giving people a better customer experience, even if their outcome isn't exactly what they want. And it's been essentially all, it all seems to be entirely ideal, to be honest. It sound, sounds like a really good solution. But I suppose the question is, what's to stop in a company who may not necessarily have that degree of ethics using technology like this, not necessarily today, maybe it's in five years time or whatever like that, using it for to do things or persuade people or to, act in a way that is not necessarily in the user's best interest. What are your thoughts on the whole kind of ethical side of AI in in general? Because this technology we're talking about now is hugely powerful. There's all kinds of other technologies that are massively powerful. In the wrong hands, they could be powerful in a negative kind of way. What's your general sort of thoughts on on that from the, the, the ethical AI standpoint? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, what we need to first off, like, you know, sort of look at, um, you know, AI in perspective of sort of uh, the general sort of uh, society we live in and uh, the value system that we sort of adhere to. Uh, AI is a tool, right? I mean, the core purpose of AI is essentially to uh, do what humans do today better um, and do it maybe just as good as humans, uh, maybe, maybe better. I mean, in some cases you do it better than the humans, uh, but it's really sort of, you know, replicating uh, those certain complex tasks that, that uh, today humans do better um, or certain or are beyond the grasps of non-humans or machines or software systems. And um, so if you have a company that, uh, you know, engages in unethical behavior or uses certain use, uh, certain tools uh, for manipulation, um, you, could, you could absolutely use AI tools to um, make your systems more effective <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and cause more harm um, because it's a tool um, and a tool towards good and tool towards bad. Um, and it, just like anything else, just like any other technology, just like it, you know, uh, other aspects of system. So, yeah, I mean, but we're not looking at a tool that is very powerful and not only it, it is powerful, it's going to become immensely powerful in the future and it's going to become ubiquitous and it's going to become readily available to a lot of, a uh, lot of people out there and a lot of companies out there. And some of these, companies do not have those ethical standards uh, or countries or companies or societies and depending on sort of, you know, what you're thinking about. And um, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, um, you're going to uh, have to sort of, you know, uh, look at that entire metric of sort of compliance in a completely different way. Um, and uh, I, 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 I mean, it's a concern today and it's going to be a concern tomorrow. Uh, you could also, you know, use uh, um, this for a lot of good. Um, and um, I think I think that's what, I mean, the key things that we can do, the key measures we can take to um, sort, of, uh, sort of help put in certain, uh, you know, uh, I'd say, uh, you know, safety systems in place is to, you know, have adequate disclaimers. I mean, so if you're using a technology and you're using it for a specific purpose, uh, you need to uh, you need to disclose that to the client, and you, the, those those need to be in a more of a sort of a, a white box fashion. 
Um, and, you know, today, I mean, the major concerns a lot of companies have using a heavily AI-driven system is uh, data privacy and uh, security and, uh, you know, aspects of that in terms of sort of like, you know, uh, how um, how a system is being used and how that needs to be communicated. And does it comply with the regulatory framework or the mandate? And um, and so you have you have new rules and new guidelines that will have to be defined. I mean, some of those uh, some of the things that we have right now for GDPR related aspects are not going to they're not sufficient enough um, to sort of tackle some of the challenges that uh, these new AI tools will come to, uh, you know, bring to bring to the surface. So, yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I'm concerned about that as well. I think, I think it's just, sure should we all be. Um, and uh, as the, as these technologies mature, I think we need newer standards. Uh, we need newer guidelines. Uh, we also need uh, to show leadership. I mean, the companies that are at the forefront of it need to set the right standards um, and uh, lead by example. And I think, uh, I think all of those things will be, we'll have to deal with, not too far ahead, I'd say in this decade. I mean, by end mm-hmm. of uh, 2020, um, we're, we're going to start 2030 with a very different set of tools, very, very different set of tools. Interesting, interesting. Well, I definitely look forward to following Behavioral Signals journey and to see to see where it goes. Rana, thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely unbelievable Uh absolutely huge fan of uh, of this technology it sounds absolutely fantastic i really appreciate you joining us uh the website is behavioralsignals.com if people want to find out a little bit more and check it out any other uh, uh places for people to go any other resources that you could send people to any other calls to action that you you would like to to give people that want to learn a bit more i think behavioralsignals.com is a perfect place to go to um and uh would love to i mean if you're building an interesting use case uh, that uh, that might have synergies with what we're doing. Uh, we're always, I mean, we're very research-based as well. So certainly we have a very specific market focus and we've built uh, specific products uh, towards uh, those, those, those KPIs that we're solving for. Uh, but that said, uh, we are very research-focused and we're looking at, I mean, our uh, one of our primary goals is also to sort of uh, push, uh, you know, the technology uh, in newer directions. So we're always looking to talk to new people um, and new companies uh, who potentially we could pair up and partner with, up with. So love to engage. MailSignals.com has a contact us page. Talk to us, uh, tell us what you're doing, and we'll get back to you. Thank Perfect. you. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Thanks, Dan. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us. Tomorrow, we will be joined by Scotty Technologies, and we will be talking about business process automation with a little help from some NLP. Uh, so do join us for that. Rana, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank Thanks you for having me, Ken. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Bye now. Bye.